Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Aspire and Inquire. And today we have another amazing guest, uh, Catherine Patterson, author of more than 30 books, including 16 novels for children and young people. Among her many awards, she's twice won the prestigious Newbery Medal. She was also the second national ambassador of the young people's literature. This intro, it doesn't do enough justice, but we would just spend way too much time if we talked about it all. So, Catherine, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Ben. Delighted to be with you. Really excited to learn from you and and learn about all of your incredible stories. Well, let's see. <laughs> is So, is there anything else I missed? Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself? Uh, well, actually, um, I've written 17 novels for kids. Oh, uh, I got another one since all the bio information went out. So I'm very happy that I was able to write a 17th. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Still still cranking them out. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, we can talk about that later when you ask me about not being able to write or writer's block or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> we will definitely get to that. That's a great idea. All right. So I think a great place to start is Bridge to Terabithia. That was the book that was turned into a movie among some of your other books. And when doing my due diligence, I found that there was, an, there was a very sad but interesting story uh, that the audience could hear about. So what, what inspired Bridge to Terabithia? Well, um, it's a long story and I'll try to keep it not so long. Um, but um, it was the uh, 1974 was the year, which has been quite a long time ago now. Uh, and uh, that spring I was diagnosed with cancer. And of course my children thought I was going to die, which I obviously didn't. Um, but it was a very difficult time for us as a family. And then uh, that summer, my son David's very best friend, and he claims that Lisa was his only friend because they had changed schools, and uh, he and Lisa became uh, very good friends. And that summer, she was struck and killed by lightning. So as difficult as the year had been already, um, it simply devastated not only David, but our entire family. And so it, it just seems so meaningless that this beautiful, funny, bright little girl should be struck by lightning uh, on a day when she was at the beach with her family, the lifeguards hadn't cleared the beach. There was thunder maybe way off in the distance, but, um, uh, bolt of lightning came down and killed one little girl. Um, so how do you make sense of that for your child? I couldn't make sense of it for myself, but I, I'm a story writer and I know that stories have to make sense. They have a beginning and a middle and an end. And when you get to the end, somehow, even if not intellectually, somehow emotionally, uh, a book has made sense for you, a story, if it's well written. <laughs> uh, so I began to try to write that story. That That is, a, it sounds like a very tough year 
Um, but luckily, at least there was some some result that uh, a nice happy ending out of it. A friend and I, two friends and I, did a stage production of Bridge to Terabay together. This is long before the movie was made, and it was at the Kennedy Center in Washington D.C. So I invited Lisa's family to come, and. Um, uh, Steve Liebman, who'd written the music for our production, said to Mrs. Hill, is this hard for you that there was a book and now this play about your daughter's death? And she said, oh, it's been very healing, which in a way broke, broke my heart, but it made me feel so grateful that they had seen it, not as an exploitive act but as a healing act for all of us that is truly amazing it that, that's amazing i'm so glad to hear that well i it's a very sad story and i'm sorry to start on that but i i think it's just such an interesting background to to talk about how writing can writing can truly create some incredible Incredible things, uh, things I didn't even realize that you just mentioned. So I appreciate you talking about that. It's a wonderful essay, uh, and <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on the the writer's name. Wonderful, wonderful writer, uh, and he says that the purpose of story is healing and illumination, and I try to keep that in mind when I write. That's nice. I love that. Well, now that we can get past that, let's let's try to get to some um, some more upbeat topics. <laughs> um, so, I guess as we talked about before, we were going to get to this. Authors must deal with writer's block quite often. I mean, if you're writing for your entire career, it's got to be something that comes in and out and and sometimes there's got to be longer periods and shorter periods when you can't write but so how have you you're clearly a very accomplished writer so how have you dealt with um writer's block from time to time yeah I, i'm always surprised when i go to speak to school children and they say what do you do about writer's block and i said i look at them and i think you're 10 years old what do you know about writer's block <laughs> 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 but, uh, well, and I, I always say, well, I don't, I try not to think of it as a terminal disease. Um, it, it means something's wrong. That's, um, and you've got to find out what's wrong. Uh, when I was writing Bridge to Terabithia, I got to the chapter where Lisa was going to have to die and I couldn't write it. And, and I mean, not Lisa, but where, where, uh, uh, Leslie was going to die in the book, and I, I thought it was because I, I couldn't go through Lisa's death again. And a friend said to me, I don't think it's Lisa's death you can't go through. I think it's yours. And of course, I'd had cancer, and I'd had to face the thought that I might die, leave my children and my husband and everything I loved in this world. And... So I made myself go back. I thought, well, if it's my death I have to face, I have to write it. And so I did. Uh, but I had a longer period of not being able to write. But my husband was very ill, and this is 
uh, the last novel that I've published. Um, and I, I, I simply couldn't write fiction. I wrote a book about, which I call Stories of My Life, about uh, stories that I wanted to be sure that my children and my grandchildren knew about my family and about our life together. Uh, but I couldn't write fiction. And so I thought, well, it's okay. I've had a, I've had a good run. I've got 16 novels that I, I'm uh, happy with. And uh, uh, it's okay if I don't write anymore. I'm, I'm past 80 years old. I should retire anyhow. All my friends retired 15, 20 years ago, and here I am. And then I, I had a chance to go to Cuba again, and I was made first aware of the absolutely amazing literacy campaign that Fidel Castro, who is not one of my heroes, I promise you, but he did do some good things for Cuba. And one was his literacy campaign where he got volunteers to go out into the countryside and teach people how to read and write. And at the end of the year, Cuba was totally literate according to the United Nations observers. And I was so thrilled with that, thinking about kids between the ages of, well, the youngest literacy volunteer was seven years old and she was uh, assigned to a neighbor. <laughs> but. The ones who went out into the countryside where life was hard were between the ages of 12 and 18, many of them. And I began to think about a young girl who'd been living in the city of Havana in a comfortable home with her parents who were very, very careful about who she saw and where she went. What would it mean in her life to go out into the countryside? And I read uh, stories and I saw a movie about, uh, you know, a documentary about some of these young women and how it changed their lives. And I felt like I needed to tell that story because we need to know good things about people we consider our enemies. Uh, because nobody's totally bad and nobody's totally good. Uh, and uh, you know, we have a human tendency not to want to know good things about people we don't admire or people we hate. And we want to know that the people that we love and admire are just perfect and not, there's no badness in them anywhere, which is also, of course, totally uh, untrue. So I wrote that book and I knew people would be unhappy with it. Many people were. But a lot of people said, I've never heard of this before. This is remarkable. We should know about this. Of course, when Bernie Sanders mentioned it in his campaign, he got a lot of <laughs> negative feedback for thinking anything good came out of Cuba. But <laughs> it's just uh, exactly the way human beings act. They don't want to hear anything good about the people that are their enemies. Wow, that, that's truly amazing. And now I've written another novel. It's not published yet, but uh, so, I mean, I may have written 18 novels before uh, I 
can retire or die or whatever happens next. You're, so the basic premise is writer's block isn't really a thing. Something's wrong with you. Yeah, it's a symptom, not a disease. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something you have to get past first for you to, yes. for, to see the extent of your true ability. Yeah, but well, before I wrote my Brigade Easter Year, which is the Cuban novel, um, I mean, for five years, my husband was getting sicker and sicker, and I was having to take care of him. And he died about the same time as the editor that I'd had for 40 years had to retire. So I'd lost the two people who had been my chief support. So that's, you know, how could I write without the two of them? Uh, so I had to get past that, uh, find another wonderful editor, which I, I did, was able to. Uh, but, um, and and when I, I wrote, when I was writing the book, Park's Quest, I got, I had really had sort of thought how everything was going to happen. Um, because I usually have a book, the end of a book in mind before I really begin writing it, because I like to know where I'm going. Uh, you know, writers are different. Some people don't want to know what's going to happen every day. I, I kind of want to know where I'm heading. Uh, I don't just get in the car and drive. I, I like to have a map or a GPS or someplace to, and a destination. Uh, and that's the way I write books usually, but um, I I uh, was writing Park's Quest thinking I knew where I was going and I got to chapter 11 and I couldn't figure out how to write chapter 12 and I was totally stopped until one day I realized that if I was going to get to where I was going to get in that book, I hadn't written chapters one through 11 on the right road. I was on the wrong road to get to my destination. So although I don't like to go back and rewrite before I finish the whole first draft, in that case, in order to get back on the right track, I had to go back and rewrite the first 11 chapters before right. I could write chapter 12. Right. Wow. Well, that's that's really interesting. Uh, and and I guess there's other forms of figuring out where the best destination is to get. And of course, as you mentioned, you have to be on the right path to get there. Yes, exactly. You chose to be an author for for your career, and that's that's amazing that you can just write and, and for your career. I I love that. So. What is it about being an author that makes it the best career, in your opinion? Well, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not one of those people, uh, as are most of my friends who are very successful, who knew when they were children that they were going to be writers. Uh, I knew I, wanted, I was going to be a reader. I mean, I started reading when I was, I think, three years old because I couldn't stand not to be able to read like my older brother and sister did. And the, when my, I mean, my mother started reading to me when I was born. Uh, and uh, I wanted to, I loved books. I wanted to get in, into books all by myself. So I was reading very early. And I wrote a little bit, as most people do, but goodness sakes, it was terrible. 
<laughs> I always say to children when they say, when did, uh, when did you uh, know you were going to be a writer? And I said, would you, would you like to hear my first published work? And they all say, oh, yes, yes. So I said, here's my first published work. It was published in the Shanghai American School newspaper. I lived in China at the time. And um, it goes like this. Pat, pat, pat. There is the rat. Where is the cat? Pat, pat, pat. Well, of course, they all start laughing. And I said, see, you can do much better than that already. <laughs> and right beside my little, I can't exactly call it a poem, but whatever it was, um, was there a letter from the second grade teacher who said, um, the seventh graders' work is not up to our usual standards this week, uh, which meant that my first published work was published alongside my first critical review, which was, as you know, not a rave. So nobody thought I was going to be a writer. I didn't think I was going to be a writer. And I became a writer because um, I'm very active in the Presbyterian Church, and they asked me to write a book for fifth and sixth graders. And I thought, well, here I am home with all these little children. I'm not going to go back to school teaching anytime soon. Uh, I could write a book while I'm home. So I wrote that book. And then I thought, boy, this is a great job. I'm going to, I love to write. I will write some more. And so I wrote for seven years. And at the end of seven years, I finally published my first novel. Uh, <laughs> it was a long time before anybody thought I was a writer. <laughs> That's so cool that it, it's, it seems like writing, uh, being an author kind of found you rather than you looking for it. Yeah, I, 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 you're absolutely right. That's a good way of putting it. I, I, I didn't mean to be a writer. It was just sort of an accident uh, because I needed something to keep my brain from turning to mush with all these little children. You know, I was uh, changing diapers and trying to feed people and, and clean up and do laundry. And, and uh, I, I needed some place to make me something to call my very own that wasn't torn up or eaten up or destroyed by the end of the day. Right. Wow. That's very cool. In doing some of my due diligence, I found this really interesting quote that was, was on your website, actually. Um, and it said, reading can be a road to freedom or a key to a secret garden, which if tended will transform all of life. I, such an interesting quote, and I'd love if you could um, I explain that a bit more. Well, it's got two parts, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been very aware of the first part while I've been confined to my apartment, pretty much. I am allowed to take a walk with my dog in the afternoons, but that's just about it. Uh, and uh, because I'm 87 years old and everybody thinks we're all very vulnerable to this virus that's running around. So, but I can read and I've had them, <laughs> I, I, I thought, well, I've got all this time. I'm going to finally learn Spanish and I'm going to, Get back to practicing the piano. Have I done either one of those? No, I've just been reading book after book after <laughs> book. <laughs> and and uh, so it's, it, I mean, I know, and people 
call me up. They're so worried about me. Do you, are you stir crazy? I think, heavens no, get off the phone so I can go back to my book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do appreciate my friends calling and it's fun to be in touch <laughs> with people that you haven't talked to for years. <laughs> but uh, uh, I don't need it for entertainment. It's, it's nice for human contact, which I, I, I do appreciate. Oh, and the, and then the, the garden, uh, because I think uh, it's hard for us to realize how important breeding is, because breeding has to be tended. Uh, you can sit there and slouch on your couch and watch the TV, and it doesn't demand anything of you. Or you can get on the internet. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you need to punch the keys in. But it doesn't really ask you to think deeply. It doesn't really call from you what a book does. A book asks you to bring your, your intelligence, your ability to read, your life experience, uh, your imagination, um, all of it. And, and, and it's, it's more work than anything else that you do to sort of entertain or educate yourself. Um, I, uh, I always tell students when I um, am talking in classrooms, I say, how many of you all play a musical instrument or sing in a choir? A lot of voices, a lot of hands go up and I say, when your conductor or your director hands you a piece of music, uh, is that really music? No, it's just black squiggles on a white page until you pick up your instrument or open your voice and turn it into music. And I said, it's the same thing with my books. They're just black squiggles on white pages, sandwiched between covers, and gathering dust on the shelf till you take it down. And with your ability to read and your imagination and your life experience, you turn it into a story. I can't do it without you. You're all my co-writers. And everyone is reading a slightly different story because your imaginations and your life experience are just yours and yours alone. And uh, <laughs> then I say something that makes all the teachers get nervous. I said, now, maybe your teacher has told you what this book means, but that's not what this book means. There were probably gaps right there. <gasps> <In this book. laughs> I said, you learn what she says it means so you can do it on the test. But you have, you have to realize that what this book means is what it means for you when you bring your own imagination and experience to it. And it's going to be different for each one of you. That is such an interesting 
idea to think about. You're, you're so right, though. Of course. And if you read the same book at different periods of your life, you're reading a different book. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you've brought a different experience to it. Uh, and and I, I'm always interested when people say, well, I read this book when I was a child, but then I read it again. And, and I just didn't realize all the things that were in it. And I didn't realize how much, how relevant it was to my life. <laughs> because you're reading a different book, you you have other experiences to bring to that story. Uh, and it's like getting better glasses or something. You may have to see more clearly. But you're seeing more clearly not what the writer says, because the writer hasn't, what the writer says hasn't changed. Uh, it's what you are bringing to it. Wow. So are you saying that I have to go read Shakespeare and To Kill a Mockingbird and all the books I read six years ago to get a new meaning out of it? Well, uh, you don't have to, but <laughs> I'd be interested uh, when you do, uh, how different they feel to you. That is a very interesting idea, and I may have to do that to explore that because that's such an interesting concept. You're so right that the book doesn't change. It's you who grows and develops and use that life experience to really change your thoughts and analysis on, on those little squiggly words on paper. <laughs> exactly. Very cool. I, I like that. I think that's going to be a really interesting part of this. And I think this actually transitions quite well to the next question. And you kind of answered a little bit in, in your speech to those children, but why is it so important for children to read from a very young age? Well, uh, I don't know. It's, it's important for children to have, have books <laughs> from a very young age. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't think everybody has to learn to read at three years of age. And in fact, I'd be a little nervous about parents trying to make their children learn how to read in early age so they could prove to their neighbors that their kids were smarter than the neighbor's kids. Um, I think to make sure that children have access to all kinds of books and stories um, is the important thing from a very early age. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was... I said once, you know, I think maybe when they were saying, oh, how can we get children to read? How can, you know, children know when to read? I thought, we should pass a law and say no child is allowed to read. It can be read too, but no child is allowed to actually learn how to read until they're, oh, eight or ten years old. Just make it a law and see how many little secret clubhouses have children sneaking away to learn how to read. <laughs> if it's forbidden, suddenly it will become wonderful. <laughs> Why don't they want us to learn how to read? And you remember uh, Frederick Douglass's wonderful biography uh, when his mistress is caught teaching him how to read and the master is furious and forbids it. And he said, if, if he learns how to read, he'll no longer be uh, 
um, happy to be a slave. Right. And he realized that the way to freedom was learning how to read. And so he would trick uh, the white boys on the plantation to, to teach him how to read so that he would be free. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I think you're right. I think that if children were forbidden to read until later in life, it'd be really interesting to see how much reading and developing they would do from an earlier age. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go uh, contact President Trump right now. <laughs> Make it a federal law. <laughs> so... I the first guest on this podcast she she worked in, she works in business news um, and she's also a great writer and she I got a quote from that first episode when she said I believe the best writers are voracious readers so I was wondering how does someone become a better writer is it only reading or yeah I think the fact that I was such a reader from an early age and read and read and read and read. Uh, I figured out how I, one thing, expanded my vocabulary. I couldn't pronounce the words worth a nickel and people would laugh at me when I would try to use them. <laughs> you words I'd learned from reading because I didn't know how to pronounce them. I, and I'm still guessing at, at uh, pronunciations, but uh, I think it taught me not only, I mean, not only gave me a, a vocabulary, but it gave me a, a, a knowledge of how sentences are put together, how paragraphs are put together, how stories are put together. And I just sort of absorbed it. So that when I began writing myself, I didn't have lessons on how to write. And in school, the only so-called creative writing we did was book reports, which was were designed to squeeze any joy out of writing you might possibly have had before you started. Hmm. Uh, but because I'd read so much when I began to write, I knew a lot about writing. <laughs> uh, now, I think, I think there are, in fact, I'm on the board of trustees of the College of Fine Arts, and they have a wonderful, they have two wonderful programs that help people who want to be writers be better writers. Uh, now they can't give those people the experiences or the uh, deep feelings and emotions that, that writers need, but they can help people know how better to put together uh, what they feel and want to express. Uh, but I didn't have those opportunities. Uh, so I really learned myself from reading, which is why I don't want to teach it because I don't know how I learned it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense that reading makes you become a better writer. You get to see different writing strategies, different ways of explaining things. Um, writing styles, vocabulary, new new vocabulary. So yeah, that I mean, it definitely makes sense. And I I say to to uh, children when I'm talking to them, you know, it doesn't you don't have to 
only read really good stuff. You can read terrible stuff and then you know the difference. <laughs> right, right. So, so as a, you know, it's interesting to me. My parents were, were very conservative. They were missionaries. Um, but they never told me I couldn't read something. They let me read whatever I wanted to read. And I read all kinds of books that were not suitable for my age. Uh, just because I loved to read, and if I found it, I read it. Uh, I didn't understand a lot of stuff, but uh, I read it. And so when my own children came along, I, I thought, you know, that's a pretty big thing not to try to tell your children what they could or couldn't read. And I think it was a good, a good way to do because you, know, you weed it out if you don't understand it or if it makes you feel yucky when you read it, then you quit. <laughs> <laughs> right, so the kid, the kid will quit anyway if they don't understand or for whatever reason don't want to read what they're reading. So moving on, some, some may say that your writing, as incredible as it is, uh, it, it, it's definitely debatable whether some of the heavier topics uh, that you write about in your, in your books for young people's literature, some of the topics are a bit heavier, like death and jealousy. And so what I'm, what I'm really curious to hear from you about is why is it important to expose younger people uh, uh, to topics like these earlier on than later on in life? Ben, children are a lot savvier than we give them credit for. You know, people criticize Bridget Terabithia because they said death is not appropriate for a sixth grader. And I thought, yeah, but before my children were third graders, two of them had experienced the death of a friend. My younger daughter, when she was in nursery school, one of her classmates went up for a nap and didn't ever wake up. And my son, as I we've talked at length, uh, his best friend was killed by lightning. Now, we don't have the death of children so much anymore. And it frightens us and we don't want to deal with it. But here we are in a time where not only wars are being fought, but we're fighting an unknown, unseen enemy, which is a virus. Adults are scared. So they have to talk to children about their own fears and be honest and not try to hide what's happening in the world or in their lives. And it just kills me when somebody says that they didn't let the children go to the funeral of their grandparents because they thought they were too young. And so that means the child has to mourn alone instead of joining other people that love him and that he loves to mourn the grandparent. Uh, death is inevitable and just refusing to talk about it doesn't mean it goes away. And you can, don't know when it's going to strike or whom 
And I think of a book like Richard Avithia as a rehearsal for life. I hope children will have read it before they have to face the death of someone close to them. Uh, not afterwards, not as an, a pill to swallow to cure the illness, but as a, as a practice for what life is going to bring. That's a really good way of thinking about it. And I guess from, from your perspective, both of your children had experienced horrible things from a younger age. And so exposing them, I, I assume they, they clearly turned out all right. Yeah. Yes, they did. So that's great. And I think that's a really, really interesting topic to talk about. That's another thing we could spend hours on. Um, yes. But... I think keeping it short and sweet like that can enable a lot of people to think about um, think about that in their own way. Well, I, I got a letter from a young man who said he wanted to thank me for Bruce Terabithio, that he was in college, um, and he was waiting for his best friend to come back from a different college because uh, he missed him while he was away at school. And his friend never got back because he was in an automobile accident on the way and was killed. And of course, the young man was devastated. He said, what I did was go back to my bookshelf and take out Bridge to Terabithia, which I read when I was in the fifth grade. And it was such a comfort to me. And I wanted to tell you that. And I said, yeah, to myself, I said yes. And somebody gave it to him when he was 10. So that when he was 19, it was there for him. That's very nice. And again, the whole reading from age five or, or sorry, fifth grade to all the way in college. I mean, as you mentioned before, using it for, for a life experience um, from a different life experience perspective and then using it to help him deal with his friend's loss. I mean, that's that's truly amazing. So this has been really a really interesting conversation. And I think a last question, a really interesting one would be to ask, what would be your advice for writers looking to become published authors? And, and then a follow-up to that, what about just advice for people trying to improve their writing in general? Uh, well, my, my son, David, who wrote the film script for both uh, Bridge Terabithia and Craig Kelly Hopkins, and he's written it for another movie, which we hope will be in production soon, called Seeing Jimmy Joe. Um, when he told me that he wanted to do this, I said, well, David, uh, I think it takes two things. It takes talent, which you've got plenty of, but it also takes perseverance. And I said, a lot of people have talent. The world is full of people with talent. The world is a little bit scarce on people with perseverance. Uh, and if you've got both, uh, there's a good chance you'll succeed. And he has, fortunately, he has both. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's worked out. Um, uh, but it's a hard time 
really hard time to get a book published. And it may be even harder when you're facing more difficult days ahead uh, financially, as well as getting through the health crisis. Um, I, I've always said I think everybody should write because it's it really helps you to examine. You look what you've written and you can examine yourself in a way that just mulling over things is not as helpful. And also, you can have uh, uh, look back and, on something you wrote and think, oh, gee, I thought I'd never come through that terrible time. And here I am. <laughs> uh, I did get through it. Uh, uh, so it's probably good for everybody to write. I'm not sure it's good for everybody to publish because sometimes what we're writing is just an expression of our own um, pain or our own uh, annoyance or, and it's not shaped into art. <laughs> uh, so it has to become um, something other than just our own uh, spewed out feelings uh, in order for it to be publishable and meaningful to other people. And that's what you publish for. You publish so that what uh, is coming out of your life is possibly going to mean something uh, to other people's lives. Publishing shouldn't be a selfish act. It should, it should be a generous act. I'm, I'm not sure I'm always as generous as I should be that way, but I need to think of it that way. That, you know, if it's just for me, then it shouldn't be published. Right, right. That makes sense. And I never thought about... I never thought about writing and, and a book that way, that the uh, the published ones, at least the ones that go out into the public, they're not just not just for you. They're the whole point is for everyone to get their own their own meaning out of your experience and your writing, as you said, and then just spreading that around to to you know show new topics and just really everything like it's so hard to talk about because a book is a work of art and it can be talked about for so many different reasons i, I was remembering as you were talking about um some years ago and people who know the story will know the name but uh oprah had chosen uh a book for her book club. And the writer who had written the book was furious because people who uh, subscribed to Oprah's book club were not the kind of readers he wanted. He wanted really smart people to read his book, not just mm -hmm. ordinary. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> I won't say what I... <laughs> what the arrogance that you think you get to choose who reads your book, and you don't want just ordinary people to wander in and maybe not get all the great things you put into this. Come on, guys, come on. It's not, if, if, if the book is for you, don't publish it. Or if it's for a very limited audience, then self-publish it and give it to the people that you want to see your little ego trip. 
Uh, I was furious. Now he's a famous writer and he's done very well. And I don't know if he goes around and checks to see if you're a proper reader for him anymore or not, but I hope he's grown up and doesn't act that way. Yeah, that's that's not what it should be about. I can understand your frustration there. That's not that's not the way it should be, or it seems it shouldn't be. Well, and that's that's the writer who thinks that he can dictate meaning. Right, which is impossible. 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 Well, Catherine, I really appreciate the time here. It was this was a really really amazing conversation, and I think so intriguing for readers to hear from an author's perspective of course to become a writer themselves increase their writing abilities um and so i I think a good place to end would be if anyone wants to follow you see what you're up to learn more about your your books where's a great place for them to keep up well, don't please don't send me your manuscript because I could get into all kind of legal trouble if you send it to me. Uh, so uh, <laughs> find somebody close by that you can trust to read your manuscript. Um, but if you want to know what's happening with me, uh, my son John helps me run a Facebook page because I uh, figure I've got other things to do. Well, he does too, but he thinks I should be on Facebook uh, and also have a website. Uh, so Facebook page and the website, you can reach by Catherine Patterson. Great. And I'll make sure to put... Bell the... Patterson correctly. Yeah. It's one T, everyone. One T. One T and Catherine with a K. And Catherine <laughs> with a K. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to put that in the show notes so people know... Uh, where they can find the website. Okay, thanks so much, Ben. Of course. And thank you. This has been delightful. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that. I had a really good time as well. All right, well, well, you have a nice weekend and stay safe. Thanks. Same to you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode and make sure to share this with your friends. If you haven't done it yet, give us a follow on Spotify and Instagram at aspire underscore inquire to take on this journey with us. That being said, stay tuned to next Thursday because you will not be disappointed. Peace.